Y'all, I want to introduce you to James. Uh, nice song. Um, <clears throat> James is part of this. Uh, somebody asked me, what do we call ourselves, this group of pastors? And it's like, I think just friends. Like, that's, that's what we are. Um, what's unique to this role of lead pastor, um, it's great to be with other lead pastors who just get it. Right, that, that we can just look at each other and we understand exactly what's going through each other's minds and, and reach life. That's where James is, is the lead pastor of. Uh, that y'all have been around for what, four, four years? Yep. Um, and when they were just getting started, they actually visited Fellowship Asheville when we were still at the Y. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they were there, we told them to stand up and we prayed for them. And, and we even said, if any of y'all, any fellowship people feel called to go with them, uh, to help start Reach Life, by all means go. And some people took us up on it, which was great. And so hopefully I'll get to see them this afternoon or this, yeah. later this morning when I preach there. But y'all, um, I'm going to pray for James. Um, he is a great man. He is an Asheville native, has been yep. here his whole life. His football coach is right over there, um, uh, which let's is great Rockets. fun. Um, sorry. <laughs> all right, let's pray. Jesus. Uh, thank you uh, for what you're doing in this space today, and, and God, I pray that you use it as people will be sitting at home or in their cars or out for a jog listening. I pray that wherever your word, uh, wherever they hear your word being taught uh, through James, that you change their hearts and you draw them closer to you. Um, God, um, thanks for, for James being uh, willing to participate in this little experiment and uh, of pulpit swapping, and, and God, I pray that you bless it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be here. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Fellowship Asheville, you guys have been a blessing to us. Our associate pastor, Terry Hollifield, came from here, and he, he actually took right up on the offer when, when we stood before you guys at, at the Y. And I love your pastor. There's a lot of things I love about him. One of the things is that he likes to pray. For example, this morning when I was coming in, I felt feverish, and I couldn't smell, and I couldn't taste. And so I was like, man, he's like, let's just pray for you. And I'm starting to feel a lot better now. So, And uh, I went around and prayed on every, on every chair where you're, so, you know, we're covered. You can take your masks off now, but, uh, but you know, seriously, Fred is very open-handed with ministry. Sometimes, as pastors, we want to guard our churches and us and no more, but he, he wants to see the gospel go through, through Asheville and the kingdom and Jesus exalted. Another thing I love about your church is, uh, is Coach Severe. Uh, listen, Coach, I've been waiting for 35 years to do what I'm about to do. Uh, he was my teacher, my geometry teacher over at Reynolds uh, 35 years ago, and uh, several things you taught me. Number one, you taught me that vertical angles are congruent. Is that right? Okay, good. Uh, uh, you also told me that even a blind squirrel sometimes finds an acorn, and you taught me how to kick a football straight down the middle of up, uh, uprights. And here's how he did it. One practice, I was... Uh, kicking extra points and it was shanking left 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 and so he comes in love and takes my face mask he goes nice a songbird that's what he called me not my last name's nice song he called me songbird he said what's the problem I said well my neck's hurting coach you know he's like why aren't you kicking straight through I said I don't know he said see this uh, nine and a half shoe right here 
If you don't kick it straight through, I'm, well, I've got to stop with what he said after that. But I will say that I kicked that ball straight through. I mean, literally, I, it was, I'm not making that part up. It went straight through after that. So he knows how to motivate. But Coach, I, Coach Severe is one of those guys that, you know, you have people in your life that God puts in your life that helps you to encourage you, to motivate you, and, and to make sure you're on the right track. And, you know, one of the things that God has taught me is that God uses real and ordinary people, real and ordinary people. Coach Severe is real, he's ordinary. But when I say ordinary, I don't mean boring, that type. He's one of those guys that's relatable, that can actually be in your life. He's, everyday, he's an everyday folk like you and I are. And that's what our passage is, is going to teach us this morning, that God, though he is highly exalted, he works in ordinary but real people. So I don't know about you, but my family and I, we love the holiday season. We love the food. We love friends. We love fellowship. We love Christmas music, and we love Christmas movies. And I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen A Charlie Brown Christmas, the 1965 classic. I grew up watching that. Well, in that classic Um, Charlie Brown, something's just not sitting right with him. And he's sitting on, standing at the wall talking to Linus. He's like, you know, this year I'm just not feeling it. uh, I I love the presents. I love sending cards. I love decorating the tree. But this year I'm just, I'm not happy. I'm depressed. And so he spends the rest of the show trying to figure out what Christmas is about. And he's very disillusioned by commercialism And so he tries to busy himself by being the director of the Christmas play, if you remember. When that fails, he decides to go out and get a shiny Christmas tree. He says that will put us in the the mood. So him and Linus go to the tree lot, they search for a tree, and they find the tree, which is what we all know as the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It's small, it's ordinary, but it's real. And that's that's the tree that Charlie Brown chooses takes it back, and the gang just lets him have it. They ridicule him. They say, go watch it. They say things that are not allowed to be said on TV anymore back then. But they, they, even his dog laughs at him. So you know it's bad when Snoopy laughs at you. And at that point, that's when Charlie Brown, he's had enough. He goes, and, and I quote, everything I do turns into a disaster. Can you relate to that? That there are times in life where everything you do feels like it's, it's a disaster. He goes, I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. And then he yells into the, the heavens, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is about? And that's when Linus removes his thumb from his mouth. He goes, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he turns and goes while dragging his blanket to center stage and he says, Lights, please. And you know, he quotes today's passage. So would you stand with me as, as we, in honor of the word of God, we're going to read Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. And what Linus shares changes Charlie Brown's perspective forever. So read with me. I'll read, but you can follow along. So. And then we're in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, 
And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, would you say this with me? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you know, for those of us who were raised in the, in the Christian tradition, the birth of Jesus and the account of the shepherds, if we're not careful, it, we can, it can become so familiar to us that it can seem ordinary. And it's, it's possible that we will lose our amazement with what God is wanting for us to learn in this passage. And it can get to a place where it no longer stirs our hearts. But, you know, I want to remind everyone that what we just read is an historical event. This really happened. And so my prayer has been for me and my prayer has been for all of us that what we are going to hear this morning will stir us afresh once again by the Holy Spirit. And uh, as we dig into the passage, we're going to need to back up and get some context um, for where we're at. And earlier in the chapter, we see that the fulfillment of God's promise that he made back in chapter 1 is being fulfilled. Remember back in chapter 1, the angel Gabriel comes, and he startles Mary, and he says, you know, even though you're a virgin, you're going to conceive in your womb, and you're going to have a baby. He's going to be the Messiah, and you're going to call his name Jesus, which this actually is the fulfillment of a 4,000-year-old promise that God made back in the Garden of Eden. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he's talking to the serpent, he tells him, you know, the seed or the offspring of Eve is going to come. I'm going to send him, and he's going to crush your head. I love that. The seed, Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent. He says, but you will bruise his heel, which teaches that the second Adam would die, would give his life to save his people. That's the gospel that was given all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, fast forward 4,000 years to to where we are in chapter 2. God is fulfilling this promise. We need to make sure we see this. This is primarily what this passage is, is about, God fulfilling his promise. And when God makes a promise, Hebrews says that he cannot lie. God cannot lie. When he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. He always keeps his word. But have you ever noticed that the way he keeps his word is not typically the way you thought he was going to do it? Uh, This is exactly what he says in Isaiah uh, 55, 8. For my thoughts, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. I don't think like you. You don't think like me. And my ways or your ways are not my ways. The way you do things isn't the way I do it. And so if you'll remember Joseph and Mary, who were ordinary but real people, and remember, Mary was super pregnant. They went up from Galilee to Bethlehem to be registered. And while they were there, verse 6 of chapter 2 says, And while they were there, the time came. 
I love that. The time came for God's word to be fulfilled. The time came for her to give birth. And verse 7 says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Those are, swaddling cloths are long strips that you wrap a baby in. I've been told that uh, a baby likes to be wrapped in something real tight when they first are born because it makes them feel like they're still in their mother's womb. So we see that, that Mary has a mothering instinct. And at this point, everything's good. Until we read further on in verse 7, it, it says, And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And we got to be careful here that we don't romanticize this. This is the part I talked about earlier. It can become so familiar that it doesn't, it doesn't cut like it should. There's three things I want us to see here. Um, it says that there was no place for them in the inn. And traditionally, we've been taught that Jesus was born in a stable Others would say he was born in a cave, while others have said actually the inn was a guest room in somebody's home, and there was no room for for, uh, them to be born there, so they were born in a shed kind of that was attached to the house where all the animals would have been. And so, you know, people actually argue about this. Uh, Was was it in a cave? Was Was it in a stable? Was it in a home? And really, that's not what this passage is about. I know that Fred gives us, when he's preaching, you give context, right? You, you, this is not the point of the passage, right? So this is not the point of the passage. What we do need to see is that this is God's plan. For when his son was going to be born, there was not going to be room in the end for him. Uh, secondly, what we see here is that there's no mention of a doctor or a midwife. Husbands, pay attention here. Listen to me. Think about that. There's no doctor, there's no midwife. Now, when I was 25, I've got six kids, and when I was 25, I would have loved that, you know, because I, was, I thought I knew everything. Now that I'm older, I'm like, no way. I'll let the midwives, I'll let the doctors do their job. But there was no doctor or midwife. So more than likely, Joseph had to deliver the child. And thirdly, we need to realize that there, this uh, manger was an unsanitized animal trough where animals eat. And the thing that should blow our minds is that the God, the God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, the God who can do anything, that there's nothing difficult for him, he could have provided a pristine and pure and prestigious birthing facility with a golden crib for his son to be born in. But the thing that should blow our mind is that although he could, he didn't. That was not his plan. And, you know, I was thinking, what if um, I did this when I was having uh, my wife, who, who's sitting right here, my wife Kelly and my, my youngest son, Adoniram. Uh, what if I had done what God did? So she's pregnant, nine months pregnant, and I say, we're going to get on a donkey. Because we know it was on a donkey because all the Hallmark cards show the silhouette of Mary sitting on a donkey. We're going to get on a donkey and we're going to go 80 miles. We're going to go to Hickory and go 80 miles. And when we get there, we're going to go in a back alley where there's no doctor. And I'm going to deliver. And then we're going to take our baby and lay him or her in a dog bowl. I guarantee you, listen, as loving and committed as my wife is, 
I promise you, she would not be saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. She would be saying woe unto you. <laughs> it's, uh, this would be considered humane. I probably would be in jail. But, you know, isn't that similar to what God did? Wasn't that similar to God's plan? And the confusing thing on top of this is that when this happened, Joseph was actually being obedient to God. It would be one thing if he had been living a reckless life, didn't have the money to provide for a midwife or a doctor, but that's not what happened. He is being obedient. And let me ask you this. Have you ever been seeking to serve the Lord? You've been seeking to be obedient with what he's called you to do, and instead of things getting better, they got worse. That may be where you're at right, right now. For example, maybe you've been spending time, your time, your resources, your energy, you've poured your life into somebody only to find out that they weren't being real with you or that you find out that they were just using you or worse yet, they turn on you and begin to blame you for why they are in the place that they are in because even though it's because of their poor choices. There's, there's times that when we serve, serve the Lord, when we follow him, instead of things getting what we would think better, things get worse. But when that happens, and you might be in that place right now, I want to remind you that God has not forsaken you. How do we know that? Because God cannot lie. He says, I will never leave or forsake my people. And he is always he is always, always, always at work, even when it doesn't feel like he is. And so, you know, back to Joseph, maybe after everything happened, he was thinking to himself, okay, all right, the baby's here. Surely God is going to surprise us and send us some relief. And God definitely does surprise him, them again, because in verse 8 it says, and they were in the same country, Shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. Of all people that God could have gone to, he went to shepherds to announce the 4,000-year-old promise. Again, God doesn't do what, what we would do. He, did, he doesn't go to prominent politicians, businessmen, actors, or professional athletes to promote his message. Instead, he enlists ordinary but real shepherds who, culturally speaking, were nobodies. They were, you know, they would have been at the bottom of the totem pole. Now, let me ask you this. If you had a cure for the coronavirus, I want you to think about that. Well, let's say a week ago. If you had a cure for the coronavirus, who would you tell? Would you go up to McDonald's over here at River Ridge and go in the back and tell it to some 16-year-old guys flipping hamburgers? Or would you go to the Walmart up here and you know the guy that's always, that's retired, that doesn't need to be working, and so he's happy and he's welcoming everybody? Would you tell it to him? The reason I'm asking that is because shepherds were typically young boys and older men. And that's who God chooses to reveal to reveal this message to. They are the first people that hear this. They are ordinary. They are real, just like you and I. And I love this because 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 says this. And 
I can relate to this. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. This is the Apostle Paul. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In other words, when we boast, may it be not in ourselves, but may it be in the God who created us, who loved us, who has sent his son. I love this because there's times that when we're reading the word of God, it can be intimidating. It can be, uh, we can get disillusioned because everything that you read in the Bible just seems to be big and exciting things that God is doing. And, and sometimes we can forget that the Bible is kind of like a, a highlight reel of God's, uh, of, of God's supernatural activity. And if we read it, if we don't read it in the right way, we can think that what we're doing, is that, which is ordinary for the most part, and that we're not seeing angels every day, we can think that somehow we're missing it. And that there's a danger to think that if your life is not exhilarating, if your life is not thrilling, if you're not do, this is one I hear a lot, if you're not doing the thing that you love, you're missing it. If you're not in that dream job doing what you love, if you're not being a change agent and, and, and affecting the masses on YouTube, you know, the, the truth about changing people, what I've been told is we, as most of us, will have influence on one, two, three people in our lifetime. But that's, that, that's what most of us are going to do. And when I realized that, it changed my whole perspective on what and how I need to be doing ministry. But you know, this, this thought of having living the big and exciting life all the time is not anything new. It's a dilemma that's from, from old, time of, uh, old times. Proverbs 17.24, which was probably written around 2,700 years ago, says this. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom. The discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. In other words, those who have discernment, those who are wise, they understand that what you need to do is to be faithful with wherever God has put you. Be faithful in what you're doing day after day. Do what's in front of you. Find purpose and satisfaction, not necessarily in what you're doing, but in who you're serving. While the fool, on the other hand, thinks that, you know, their destiny is somewhere out there. You know, it's, it's out there, and, and instead of being fully invested where they are, they, t they tell themselves, you know, I'm going to really engage when God shows me what I'm really supposed to be doing. The truth is, wherever you are right now today is where God has placed you, unless you're being extremely disobedient, wherever he has you in your job, that is where God has placed you to be faithful, and you're doing what you should be doing uh, as long as you are doing it faithfully and doing it as unto the Lord. And if we're not careful, if we have that attitude of waiting for that thing, we won't be fully committed where we are or to anything, and we'll end up not building anything of real value. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not saying that 
the Christian walk is supposed to be a death walk, you know, that there should be no joy or, or excitement. There are exciting and adventurous moments, but for the most part, we, we all live real and ordinary lives in ordinary moments. And so God doesn't want us to find our purpose. He doesn't want us to find our meaning of life in our families, our jobs, our churches, our ministries, although those are wonderful gifts that he has given to us to glorify him through, he wants us to find our purpose in him, the very person of Jesus. And so, what, what does God do? He sends an angel to real and ordinary shepherds who are faithfully performing thankless, a thankless and a mundane job, working in solitude away from the crowd. They're just out there in the field. Nobody knows what they're doing. And that's, that's when he shows up. Verse 9, it says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. Notice that it's not the angel's glory that shone around them. It's the Lord's glory. And it says, And they were filled with great fear. And they were filled with great fear. I want us to look at that. Fear. It's interesting that three times in, our, uh, in chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, an angel appears. Three times. And three times the angel has to say, fear not. Do not be afraid. And that's because whenever you enter into a, a sinful man enters into the presence of a holy God, instead of giving praise and thanksgiving and worship, you're filled with great fear and terror. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever been terrified? I'm not talking about scared like someone's hiding around the corner and they jump out and, and scare you. I'm talking about terrified. Uh, 25 years or so ago, I was out in Yellowstone National Park doing something very foolish. I was in the backcountry backpacking where there's bears. And before you go out there, if you've ever done any back, did anybody ever do backcountry You've got to watch a video about bears. They scare you to death about what, what will happen to you if they get you, and then they say, have a good time. But it's one of those things that I was out, I mean, miles out where no one knew where I was at, and all of a sudden this big black bear starts walking towards me on the pathway that was next to my tent. And you, you never know what you're going to do until you're in uh, a that type of moment, but suddenly something rose up in me that had, I had never felt before, and I realize now it was terror, and I began, I was involuntary at this moment, I began just grabbing things and throwing, not like that, it was, it was much more, it was more like that, coach, it was, uh, uh, and then I, uh, but I, <laughs> all right, I got a point here, I was, I was yelling, saying things, it was weird, I was horrified by the creation, by something God had created. How much more to come in the presence of the creator of that bear? In Revelation 1, 17 uh, through 18, the Apostle John, remember the Apostle John, the one that he said, the one whom Jesus loved? He was one of the top three. He laid back on Jesus' chest during the Lord's Supper. It says in, in John, uh, Revelation 1, it says, when I saw him, he had a vision of Jesus, or he saw Jesus. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is one of Jesus' best friends. This is the resurrected Jesus. 
When John saw him, they weren't hugging. He fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. And also in Revelation 16, when the wrath of, of, the, of the king has come, when Jesus comes, and those who have, not, who have refused to surrender to him, to surrender to his gracious offer of salvation, those who refuse to come to him, it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones of the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? So, you know, I don't care who you are. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how rich you are, how tough you are, how smart you are, good looking. When we come into the presence of the resurrected Savior, knees buckle and hearts melt and mouths are closed because in the presence of the Lord we realize who he is which makes us realize who we are which causes us to cry out woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a, amongst a people of unclean lips I am undone but you know what that's why I love verse 10 in our passage. It says, And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Fear not, for I behold, I bring you good tidings, not judgment, but good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Because we are sinful, because we have been rebellious, we know at the heart, at the deepest part of our heart, that it is, it is a fearful thing to be in the presence of a holy God. And God, knowing this, did for us what we could not do for ourselves and sent his son, Jesus, to do for us what we could not do. Or that you can do, but you don't want to do. And that's pay for your sins. He sent Jesus to pay for our sins. And then to clothe us in his righteousness. And he gives Jesus, in, this, in, in verse 11, three titles. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior. He came to save us from our sins. Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is God's chosen, anointed one. Yes, he is our brother, but he, is, he stands above us all. Lord. This is a title that's used for God. For one who exercises supernatural authority over creation. That's what that title is. And it's interesting that this title is used three times in our passage. Verse 9, I don't know if you noticed it. It says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round 
around them. That's the same word, Lord, that's used of Jesus. In other words, this is the same Lord who took on flesh and was born to ordinary but real people and laid in a feeding trough. Verse 11 is the gospel. And as soon as the angel delivers his message, the heavens explode. In verse 13 it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is the song, the angel's song. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. But we need to realize that before we can sing with the angels, we have to receive verse 11. The only reason that this is good news to us is because of verse 11 that says, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord is born. And so we see here that the birth of Christ, the birth of Christ confirms to us that God is a covenant-keeping God. He, when he says something, he will do it. He keeps his promises, and he is attentive to the heart cries of his people. The manger and the shepherds remind us that God went low. God went to as low as he could in order to save all men, all children, all women. And he is pleased and he takes pleasure in saving those of us who will joyfully and humbly accept his offer of salvation through the gift of his son. So this morning, um, this Christmas season, maybe, let me ask you this, can you relate to Charlie Brown? You might be in a place where you're just not feeling it this Christmas season. Your life seems mundane, it seems ordinary, or maybe you're experiencing fear. You're fearful of what, uh, you thought 2020 is bad, and you're like, oh, I hope that when we get to 2021, I'm not going, man, I wish I was in 2020, right? You're fearful of the future. Or maybe you have regret from the past, something that you did that you shouldn't have done, or something you should have done that you didn't do, and it's haunting you. You might be in a place of depression. You're you're in a place where life isn't making sense. Well, if that's you, let me just say, it could be that that's you because you've lost focus. You need to redirect your focus to the message that God gave the shepherds by the angels. Because, you know, that message that he gave to the shepherds is the exact same message that we preach every week. The good news. It's the same gospel that he has given to us, which is this. Fear not, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto us is born a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And listen, if we will truly grasp that, if that will be, we'll allow the Lord to reawaken that in our hearts. Then and only then can we join with the angels and sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, you are you are good. You are 
merciful, you are kind, you are gracious. And Lord, you are holy. Your thoughts and your ways are not like ours. And we chose to rebel against you and wanted to go our own way. But you wouldn't have it. You, you, you came after us. You went after us. Even in the garden, you went after us and you gave a promise that you would send a Savior, Lord. We are celebrating that in the Advent season right now. And I ask that you would help us to see your glory this season, remembering that you have kept your word, that you have not forsaken us, you are with us. You sent your son to pay for our sin, our greatest problem. We've been forgiven if we've put our faith in you. Help us to remember this and to live in the light of this truth. I pray this in Jesus' name.